Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. UABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Circus Vasquez has presented death defying acts and mesmerizing entertainment for over 50 years, and now they've pitched their tent at Plaza Fiesta on Buford Highway. Their all-human cast of performers comes from locations around the globe, including Italy, Africa, and even Ukraine. Later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Drobe speaks with ringmaster and performer Jan Vasquez and aerialist Valeria Koshova of the Ukrainian bingo troupe. First, constructing a Lego castle or spaceship is a fun activity for children. Sean Kenny turned his childhood hobby into a full-time career. The award-winning artist has created Lego masterpieces for the last 15 years. His current exhibition, Nature Pop at Zoo Atlanta has 40 larger-than-life sculptures of both plants and animals. Sean Kenny joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Sean, when did you first become interested in building Legos? Um, I don't know. When did you meet your mother? (laughs) I... I have been building and playing with Lego toys quite honestly since before I can even remember. We found some photos of me when I was two years old stacking some bricks together. Um, It has just honestly always been a part of my life. Oh, and when did building Lego sculptures become a full-time career? Well, over 15 years ago, I kind of was always a, a hobbyist uh, and I always played with Lego as I got older, but but about 15 years ago, I decided to sort of hang up my necktie, so to speak, and quit the office life and, and actually just try to create art with Lego bricks professionally, full time. I've always been an artist. I've, I was a graphic designer prior. I've been a cartoonist. Um, and I think something at that point in my life made me realize I should try to combine my hobby, playing and creating with Lego, with my artistic background. And, and it led me to where we are today. My goodness. Would you walk us through your 
creation process. These Legos are sometimes life-sized. How do you build them to such a large scale? Yeah. So, I mean, every sculpture that I create starts out as an idea or as a drawing first. If I'm going to create a sculpture of, say, a polar bear, um, honestly, the first thing I think about is, well, I don't know enough about polar bears. Let me go online and look at pictures. Let me look at videos and watch, you know, how they behave together and, and start to get ideas about what it is I might want this sculpture to be doing. And then it's drawing and trying to figure out, okay, well, what what is my polar bear going to be doing? Are there, is it is it a mom and a baby? Is it, a, is, it, is it something hunting? And, and I go through that creative process that I suppose you would go through, you know, regardless of what your final uh, output, what your medium is, whether it's an oil painting or a bronze or whatever. So once I have an idea of what I want this sculpture to look like, then I begin the process of, of actually trying to figure out how to make it um, with, you know, uh, tens of thousands of Lego pieces. First thing I do is I usually will model it in the computer in 3D so I can get an idea of how big it's going to be, how heavy it might be, or how unwieldy it might be to move around. And then once I have that, I begin to actually create a, a digital schematic, almost like an architectural blueprint of what I want that sculpture to look like with Lego pieces. I used to do it the old-fashioned way on the table at this point in the process, actually, but I have found now that there's software available, kind of like Minecraft, that game where kids can build with little cubes, um, mm -hmm. that I can stack cubes together in a, in a virtual space on a computer screen and move it around and look at it and really get a feel for, for what it's going to be like rather than, rather than just building it on the table, taking it apart and building it again. And what I've found is that having this software at my disposal, I'm able to... Well, I guess I have all of the power of undo and edit and save as and copy paste that all, all the progress that the word processor gave you over the typewriter, I now have at my disposal with these pieces of software. There's no magic button that you push that makes a sculpture of a grandfather that looks like it loves its granddaughter. <laughs> That's, that still requires the human hand. And also the size of some of these creations, I mean, larger than life, some of them. I'm also curious about the fact that you can't just build one of these, you know, sitting on the floor and coming up with a polar bear or panda or palm tree. You not only need the aid of the computer software graphic, but I would think the space is also a challenge. And with these shows you've had at various zoos, I see you've made replicas of flamingos, snow leopards, monkeys. How do you achieve that lifelike quality so that they appear less rigid or boxy? I mean, you've got all kinds of angles to deal with in Legos. Yeah, well, clearly one of the most challenging aspects of, of using little plastic squares to create <laughs> soft organic features is exactly that. I've been building and playing with Lego for so long that I have in my mind, you know, I can, I can almost see things as Lego bricks. And so when I, when I come to design something, if, you know, let's say, you know, I'm going to create the, the face of an animal, 
you know, I already sort of have an idea what I might use or how I might do that based on the, the library of Lego pieces that I have available to me. Of course, we all know about the squares and the rectangles, and those are the easiest way to create sort of stepped, curved, large forms. But when I get to, say, a face or a hand where I want to have more detail, I can start to use some of the, some of the funny pieces, you know, things that are slopes and circles and, you know, radar dishes and shaped like coffee cups and wheels and windows and whatever else, all the little pieces that you might find in a Lego set at the toy store, I have those at my disposal. And I don't have anything else other than what the children have. I, I don't have any special colors or any special shapes. And for me, that makes it a lot like the art world of found materials, where I sort of have to figure out how can I create the image, the look, the aesthetic, or the emotion that I want to create using this library of materials that I have before me. And so that process is, is really is the old fashioned way. I might have a digital schematic of, let's say, a five foot tall sculpture of a lion, but I'll build the face on the table right in front of me, the old fashioned way with lots of pieces, and I'll take it apart and put it back together again. I'll surround myself with photos of lions um, or drawings that I've done and really just figure it out as I go. When I have a design that I like, and it usually involves dropping it and breaking it about 10 times <laughs> and putting it back together, um, then it's time for me to, to, to build a final copy of that um, into the sculpture itself by using those, those sort of creaky rough sketches, I guess you could call them, and then uh, using that as my prototype and putting that into the final piece. Have you ever worked with zoologists or wildlife biologists while creating these pieces? Yeah, when I first started creating this exhibition, or these series of exhibitions, I should say, my team and I worked together with a university that had a botanical garden, and so they had a whole team of, uh, of people like that that could help suggest ideas or, or look at things together with me, or, or even bring up you know, subject matter that they thought was really interesting. Say, oh, you know, you could create a, it'd be really neat to do a cross section of a tomato or uh, what about, you know, a rhinoceros or, you know, that kind of thing. And we would, we would work together, you know, sort of bouncing back and forth and coming up with interesting, you know, something that we think would look interesting and also be educational. So I don't work with the university anymore, but now I work together with a traveling exhibition company called Imagine Exhibitions. And they work together with science uh, museums and with arboretums and zoos and all kinds of other organizations that they can tap into that expertise and try to help take what I do and elevate it to another level, whether it's by adding a scientific component to it or an engineering component to it or something else so that together with my artwork, children or adults that come and look at my work can also learn something. How long did it take you to build the installations at Zoo Atlanta? The sculptures at Zoo Atlanta took about a year and a half to construct, and that was together with a team of about six other artist assistants of mine. I think, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it's somewhere on the order of about five to 7,000 hours of actual labor, of actual construction. And so to put that in context, a full-time work year is about 2,000 hours. So you're, you're looking at three and a half years of full-time work, basically, to assemble all these sculptures. My goodness. Do some of these pieces go on display in multiple exhibitions? I mean, the animals and plants could go to other zoos and botanical gardens. Yeah, absolutely. These sculptures have actually all been traveling around the world for almost 10 years now. The, the ones that are at the Atlanta Zoo right now are my newest, which uh, just premiered last year at a botanical garden in uh, Tennessee. 
and they've only had, I think, one other stop between now and uh, and that location. But yes, absolutely, that's that's kind of the whole way it works. These, you know, I, I can make these sculptures here in my studio and put as much time and effort into them as, as I want because no one in the right mind would pay me for all that time and effort. But then I can fill up a C container and, you know, ship it off from, from A to B to C. And as it tours around the world, you know, it, it kind of helps offset the, the massive cost of spending, you know, months and months and months building each one of them. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with award-winning Lego artist Sean Kenny. Some of the installations at the Atlanta Zoo are color-coded instead of displaying the animals' natural colors. I noticed the bunny is blue and yellow. Is that by chance a nod to Ukraine? You know, I, I wish it was, and come to think of it now, it probably should be. <laughs> but I actually created about 40 different bunnies that we have, and they're all kinds oh. of different colors, polka dots and stripes and all kinds of things. But an opportunity like this, I didn't realize, has presented itself, and maybe it's a good opportunity for us to, you know, add a sign or something like that to that particular piece. Well, I, on a personal note, my daughter loves bunnies. She went to the University of Michigan, and she would like to think that that yellow and blue is the mason blue of the university. So you could take credit for that, too. <laughs> and the polar bear is various shades of blue. Now, is there a backstory behind that decision? Yeah, I mean... All of the sculptures, you know, it, it was it was a lot of fun to try to reimagine nature in sort of this pop art, crazy, vibrant, colored way. Uh, you know, the whole idea was trying to make an exhibition of sculptures that was just just bombastic and crazy, you know, and and constantly giving you some visual surprise as you turn the corner and and come across the next. After years of making natural, colored, realistic looking animals, I wanted to sort of I don't know, just give you something different. You know, as I went through and tried to figure out like, you know, what is this going to look like? It's not enough for me to just say, okay, the lion is red, the bear is blue, the frog is, I don't know, pink. That, that's that's not interesting. It can get boring after a while. And so um, for each sculptor, we tried to think, what what could it be? And, and, and could it be something that's related to the subject matter itself? So in the case of the polar bear, I thought it would be interesting to make the bear look like this kind of stripe. It's, it's this series of stripes of different shades of blue, dark, light, all the way through to turquoises. And to me, it reminded me of an ice core. You know, when researchers will go to the North or South Pole and they'll, they'll drill through into the ice and pull a core straight up. And you can see the many levels of strata of the different sort of permafrost or ice or other frozen layers. I don't know, and it reminded me of the polar bear's habitat in that way. So I, I thought it would just be a fun nod and, and also just something that's sort of playful and, and silly to look at. It is all of the above. <laughs> Speaking of the outdoors and outdoor environments, do you apply some sort of protective coating to these sculptures? I mean, they're, they're out there with the elements. Now, plastic does not do very well in the sun, right? If you've ever seen a water bottle that's been left on the side of the road or something, it gets yellow and brittle. It wants to crack easily. And Lego is no exception, unfortunately. So, yeah, every single one of these sculptures, in addition to, you know, having glued every single piece, you know, with a, an industrial solvent <laughs> one by one as I press the parts together, and in addition to having a, a metal skeleton on the inside so we can keep these things bolted down to the ground in case of high winds, 
in addition to all of that, we also put a special lacquer around the outside of the sculpture after it's finished. So it's, uh, it's basically a UV protectant coating, not unlike the kinds of layers that you would have on a car to help protect the plastic from the UV effects of the sun and also to help protect it from color fading. Hmm. Sean, you live in Amsterdam, one of the great art capitals of the world. Rembrandt and Van Gogh are neighbors of yours. <laughs> have you ever been tempted to recreate one of their masterpieces? I know a lot of people love to make versions of fill-in-the-blank thing X out of Lego, whether it's you know a Lego Mona Lisa or a Lego Ferrari or a Lego Empire State Building. I'm happy enough to make my own things rather than creating Lego versions of, of other people's things. But that said, living in a city like Amsterdam, it is absolutely wonderful to be able to go to the museums and be able to be inspired by the works of the great masters. I can walk five minutes to the Rijksmuseum and see original original paintings by you know uh, Van Gogh and, and Rembrandt and Monet and, and everybody else. And I've only been here in Amsterdam for two years. Prior to that, I was in New York, which you can't walk five feet without seeing some great work of art on the side of a building or, or anywhere else in New York City. So I, I love, love, love immersing myself in all the culture of the great cities of the world so that I can hopefully become inspired and, and infuse it into my work. In addition to creating Lego masterpieces yourself, you've also written nine children's books, mostly on how to create structures such as trucks, robots, castles, etc. Why did you want to put together how-to guides for children? Well, I'm a dad and I have little kids of my own. And so I love that sort of, you know, that sharing and that, that, that passing of knowledge from the master to the apprentice. And I don't know, I, I remember when I was a child being really, really inspired by these series of um, short magazines almost that the Lego company used to produce back in the early 1980s that they called idea books. And the, the whole concept of them was that if you just rummaged around in the bin of pieces that you had at home, maybe the things that you saw in this book would give you some ideas. And um, I lived in those books that the staples are gone, the, the edges are faded. And, and <laughs> I, I just, I realized Lego doesn't make those anymore. And, and I wanted to bring that back to the world, I suppose. And so why not leverage all the things I've learned in how to create, you know, neat looking things out of Lego bricks and then, you know, pass my ideas and inspiration on to the kids uh, in these books. Hmm. I also saw you create portraits of people with Legos. And recently you took on a tragic subject. Please tell us about the portraits you made of the 21 victims who died in the Uvalde school shooting in Texas. Yeah. So I do create portraiture with Lego bricks, and I've been doing it for a long time. I've created hundreds and hundreds of them. One of the things I'm sort of always doing regularly is drawing children, drawing portraits of children, and then building them. And so it's always something I fold into, you know, in between all my other projects. So it's something I'm always doing. And when the tragic shooting happened in Uvalde, I didn't know how to react. I, I was at a loss for words. I still don't even know if I can explain now. You know, I mean, we all felt just the pit in our stomach. And, you know, as an artist, when I don't have words for something, I just make things to express how I'm feeling when I 
can't express it any other way. And I just immediately started drawing, you know, on my screen, digital, digitally drawing portraiture of these children. And I just did it as an act of catharsis, I think. I needed to sort of get it out of my system. And it was the only way I knew how to express what I was feeling. So I, I started drawing these children, making portraits of them, you know, digitally with Lego. And I wanted to, I guess I just wanted to show the spark of joy, you know, the, the glint in their eye and, and the love in their smile, because it's so easy when we get caught up in the national conversation about this stuff to focus on numbers or, or on the shooters or on the laws or on Congress. And, and I just wanted to show these, these beautiful children and, and who they were up until this happened. And the portraits themselves are, are also missing pieces intentionally. There are large sections that are left out um, because these children never never got to finish building their own lives. And so these portraits will never will never be fully built. So I started sharing them online um, just in my social media just because I don't know, I had to just make them and get them out. And they take quite a long time to create. I was just I wasn't doing I literally did nothing else other than draw these portraits all day long from when I woke up to when I, you know, two in the morning when I would go to sleep again. And I got about three done a day. And after I had done about six or nine of them, so just two or three days after the shooting, I realized that these had been going viral and they'd found their way out to the families themselves. And they started contacting me, some of the parents, aunts and uncles, cousins, other teachers, you know, thanking me to, for doing this and asking me, can we have this? Can you, can we buy this from you? <laughs> and I, I said, I'm not going to sell this to you. I'll give this to you. And so I worked together with some volunteers in, um, in the area and we raised some money and we were able to, uh, to get these um, distributed out to them. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to make a penny off of it. Are you kidding? I, I wanted to be able to hopefully bring some spark of joy back to their, back to their lives. So anyway, oh, it's, that... it's just such a terrible thing. Oh, but what a beautiful outcome and how meaningful it must be for those relatives to have your creation. Well, I hope I did it justice. You know, I hope I, I got that spark in, in each one of their eyes and that, that it brings some joy to those families. I cried every, every, every single one of them. I just cried and I said, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I, why am I making myself do all this work and, and cry and, and gut myself? And, and I realized that actually the energy that kept me going to keep doing it was because I realized that whatever pain I was feeling just staring into these eyes for hours at a time was absolutely nothing, nothing compared to what these families were, were going through. And it kind of gave me the strength to say, you know, that, that my, my pain is nothing, nothing. And, and I have to do this. It was about humanity. Sean, why are Legos your favorite medium? Hmm. That's a good question. I've always just loved them. I think, I think you know, there, there's something very both left-brained and right-brained about them. You know, they're creative, but they're also mathy. They're colorful, but they're rigid. And I, I'm like that. You know, I'm very left-brain, right-brain. You know, like if all I'm doing is, is I don't know, drawing cartoons, I need to get a, I do a spreadsheet or something. Like that's just how how I <laughs> how I work. And so I'm very kind of logical and yet also silly, you know, and, and I think that Lego reflects my personality really well. I mean, it's probably why I've never found the need to put it down so far over the last 45 years of my life. <laughs> the award-winning Lego artist, Sean Kenny. His exhibition, Nature Pop, is 
on view at Zoo Atlanta through August 8th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, artist Joseph Vizi tells us the story behind the Atlanta rap map. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Before Atlanta was the epicenter of hip-hop in the U.S., the South was often overlooked. It wasn't until the 90s when Southern hip-hop started to expand nationwide. At the 1995 Source Awards, when Andre 3000 of Outkast stated, the South's got something to say, the rap scene shifted and continues to flourish here. Atlanta artist Joseph Vesey, founder of Vesey Studio, illustrated the legacy of Atlanta's hip-hop by creating the Atlanta rap map. And he joins me now via Zoom to talk more about it. Joseph, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Please tell us about your background and experience as an artist. Yeah, sure. I grew up in Lilburn, Georgia, went to high school up there and was always kind of the artist in school, painting, customizing sneakers and t-shirts for everybody. Oh, how cool. Yeah. Ended up going to SCAD for a graphic design degree, but kind of always carried my love of art and illustration and painting and drawing with me in my work. So I've had a 13-year career now of graphic design and illustration and mixing them in every way I can for clients like Adult Swim and Coach and a lot of fashion in New York, where I lived for six years, and Vivo, Tribeca Film Festival, just a ton of clients doing doing graphic design and illustration. But are you back in Atlanta? I am. Currently, I, I live uh, right near West End, so I'm close to downtown currently. What inspired you to create the Atlanta Rap Map? So doing so many client-based projects that were really detailed and, and had just large format with a lot of drawing, little detailed painting, I enjoyed it and it, I was really passionate about it, but doing them for clients was tough. I'd done a lot of posters for Adult Swim and others and, you know, having rounds and rounds of kind of having to redraw areas and have to do it real quick because the event's coming up next week and sometimes feeling like you're not getting quite enough pay for the amount of work that goes in. 
I just realized maybe I'd do one in my spare time and do it for me, do it for something maybe I could uh, list up on a site or involved with some sort of charity aspect. And uh, naturally I thought, you know, what, what's something that I really care about and grew up loving and, and have a lot of knowledge on. And it w- wasn't really a question to do anything other than Atlanta-based hip hop has always been something I've followed very closely and, and loved since a little kid. Hmm. I read that the Atlanta rap map took you three years to complete with one full year of research. How did you gather the information for your research? Where did you begin? Yeah, I, I began just by writing everything that I remembered and I listened to. And then it was it, it was about a full year of just tracking down every older artist that, you know, there's a lot of resources online where you can find old albums that came out and digging through producers and figuring out what other projects they worked on and verifying if the other artists are from Atlanta, tracking down all the photos of locations, a lot of them which are long gone. Um, I even had to go to the Atlanta Housing Authority and kind of get some of their archive photos of some of the some of the old public housing. I listened to probably had to have been over a thousand albums and mixtapes and just writing down every note of every street name, every building, every old nightclub that was mentioned and and narrowing it down to what were the essential kind of local local hits or essential songs that I would pull the references out to put on the map. So it was a lot. It was a lot of work, a lot of notes. I have about 20 pages of little tiny notes of where every location was. I really wanted to be thorough, exhausting, and and something where nobody could really pick it apart and say I left anything out. Well, it doesn't sound like there is anything to pick apart. You've done all of the research. The map is wonderfully illustrated, Joseph. Would you describe its appearance and the artists who are pictured on it. Yeah. So originally it was painted 24 by 36, two by three feet, which is kind of a standard large format poster size. It's hard to get a feel for it online because it is pretty big. Uh, most people when they see it in real life are, it wasn't what they were expecting because of the level of detail and the size. Um, around the side, I kind of narrowed down what were the essential artists to include on there based on impact and just innovation and contribution to the genre along the very bottom is a is an area listing all the producers and djs that i thought were impactful enough to get on there because i didn't think it would be complete without them and then on the inside of the map the main area is just a very detailed illustration of the city of atlanta with a couple of the suburbs that have been played an active role inset on the sides but just with probably over 100 little locations and street names and and tons of little details that that make atlanta what it is The map not only includes legendary artists, but also cultural references, festivals. You have Freaknik on there, and you kind of trace the evolution of Atlanta hip-hop as well as iconic dances. How did you decide where these references would go within the map? Most of them, I tried to keep them as accurate as possible to either the the rappers that were mentioning them and where they would have been, uh, their true location. Like a lot of these old nightclubs or strip clubs that are that are featured on it that are long gone, I had to dig through and find the exact addresses and put them on there. But certain things like Freaknik, you know, Freaknik had multiple locations over the years it was on, but it seemed like Piedmont Park was kind of the a major home for it for a good part of its history. So it just went there. Sometimes it was about where I could fit. Like, like for instance, the West Side is so 
cram packed with locations that certain things kind of had to just get in where they could where they would fit in. Did you go through a few renditions of how the map would appear? Yeah, I actually did. I started out just doing it black and white with the ink pen, but I realized I was going to be able to get so much more just life into it, painting it with color. So that's what uh, made me jump over to acrylic paint. Acrylic paint dries fast, so it was kind of the perfect medium. I could just keep it moving. Yeah, I just I referenced a lot of illustrated maps, historical ones I've loved, and theme park maps to kind of get ideas of how to do a border versus an inside and things like that. Uh-huh. And which were helpful? Were, were there any outstanding examples? Yeah, there was a, there's a map that I've always loved. I've always seen it online. I can't quite remember the name of the artist, but it, it's a map of Harlem nightlife from the 20s or 30s. It's a really famous illustrator. The name's just slipping my mind, but beautifully done. Just loved how it captured a time and a culture and a place. Uh, another one was, I, th- I believe his name is Dan Casaro. But he did a map based on Bruce Springsteen's lyrics. Because oh. I guess I'm not a big listener of Bruce Springsteen, but I know he has a ton of like location references and like the back streets. And, and he kind of had illustrated all that. That was another black and white map. But those two are big inspirations for it. And then, of course, all the National Geographic fold-out maps that I grew up loving and, and things like that all kind of combined. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that Harlem map sounds fabulous. And I'm sure people from New Jersey, not to mention countless Springsteen fans, would love looking at the Springsteen lyrics. But you have created something unique to us. Thank you. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with Atlanta artist Joseph Vesey. Joseph, how would you describe the influence of hip-hop on the culture of our city? I think it's been huge. I mean, I think it, our city has something to really be proud of about and really identify with. I think that culture in general is something that just kind of seems to kind of die out a little more each, each year in America, just leaving little, little pockets of true true culture. And it's something that I've always been really passionate about. I think that culture adds so much to our quality of life. And the fact that it seems to be deprioritized each year is saddens me sometimes, but there's still great living, breathing culture, cultural traditions of dance, of music, of art, of creation, of all sorts of things all over America. And um, Atlanta hip hop has just added so much to to our world and something to be proud of, something to involve yourself in, something that attracts other people to come to be a part of it. You can't even express how, how valuable it is to the city. Wow. Which albums or Atlanta hip hop artists have been most influential for you? Oh man. Well, all the Dungeon Family stuff growing up was just, it was just my childhood. I was just obsessed with everything. Outcast and Goody Mob put out everything down to Cool Breeze and Slim Calhoun and everybody like that. That was pretty much my entry point in the late 90s. I loved everything that came after that. I loved I loved Crunk. I loved that whole movement. I even liked the, the dance snap stuff. I loved what evolved after that. I loved a lot of trap stuff, Young Thug and Future. I've, I've kind of, I feel like I'm one of the only people that's loved all of the renditions of Atlanta hip hop throughout its whole history. For some reason, no matter what it is, it, it connects with me on some level. I'm saying, Joseph, you are an omnivorous hip-hop lover. 
all of it. Dungeon Family, I love that documentary featuring the dungeon. Did you see it? I did. I really enjoyed that, yeah. I thought that was great. I interviewed them, and they were so delightful. Proceeds from the sale of this poster will be donated to Hope Atlanta. Why did you choose that organization to support? Yeah, so we did a lot of research on Atlanta-based charities that we wanted to give back to. Hope seemed to be a great fit. They'd been in Atlanta since the early 1900s, gone through a lot of changes and really know the city and are really in the heart and soul of the city. The main reason I wanted them was because I really liked what they worked with in terms of housing in the city. And it seemed like they were dealing a lot with the problems that come from gentrification, with people um, not, you know, not having the resources to deal with giant property tax increases from people losing their homes and struggling to get back on their feet. And this map is kind of is indebted to the the culture of Atlanta, the just the people that were, you know, living through the various eras and all the, the good and the bad that went on in Atlanta. And to be able to give money to somebody that will directly help with those neighborhoods that are featured on the map with people that are from there. It's kind of cool idea to me to create something about a culture and a location. And then the money made from that goes directly to an organization that helps and puts money back in and, and not just throws money anywhere, but they have dedicated programs that make it so that there's actual longstanding changes and, and helping people. It was a really good feeling once I read about what they did. In terms of homelessness and services for those facing eviction. I guess the the term now is housing insecurity. Totally. And you know, so many of these locations and neighborhoods are getting completely gentrified and just completely changing. And you know, there's a lot of problems that come with that, obviously. And I know that they directly deal with that and help with that. You said we. Is VZ Studio made up of more than one person? Yeah. So VZ Studio is kind of a continuation of my my long-standing freelance design career and we do have a small team but we're also we've actually just launched a agency called creative library and you can see more on creativelibrary.co but we're going to be taking on bigger design projects and that we have a we definitely have a small team assembled that we're working every day to get that together and we also part of the dna of the agency is going to be social programs and ways to give back and and combine art with raising money for things and bringing attention to things and stuff like that is going to be really important to us. Joseph Vesey, Atlanta illustrator and founder of Vesey Studio. More information about the Atlanta Rap Map is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up... The circus is in town, and City Light senior producer Kim Drobes catches up with the daredevil performers behind Circus Vasquez, amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Originating over 50 years ago in Mexico City, 
Circus Bosquets has presented death-defying acts and mesmerizing entertainment since 1969. Their all-human cast of performers has come together from locations around the globe, including Italy, Africa, and even Ukraine. Through the end of July, they've pitched their tent at Plaza Fiesta on Buford Highway. And recently, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes caught up with ringmaster and performer Jan Vasquez and aerialist Valeria Koshova of the Ukrainian bingo troupe. Jan began by explaining why his grandfather originated the circus over five decades ago. Well, he he worked in a circus ever since he was a kid. He did not have his own family circus, but he worked in multiple circuses as a performer. And then one day he met my grandmother and they both decided to start their own business, to start their own circus. And thankfully, because of that, we have today Circus Vasquez and we're all here. What type of performer were both your grandfather and your grandmother? So my grandfather was a performer. He was an acrobat and he had an act of uneven bars where he would swing from one to the other. My grandmother was a tightrope walker and they were both great performers, but it turns out they were even better circus owners. (laughs) Well, good for them. And then here you are now, ringmaster as well as performer. And what is your act? My act is a roller roller. It's a board on top of a cylinder where I have to balance on. And I work that with my sister. We have a dual roller roller act and uh, we do dangerous tricks on top of the table. Very thrilling. We fall in a couple of (laughs) times, but it doesn't stop us. We like the, <laughs> we like the energy and we like the adrenaline. So we keep trying. No, but we have a good act. Don't, don't think we're falling every show. <laughs> Understood. And how old were you guys when you started? Uh, well, we, we've been training for circus ever since we were kids doing multiple stuff, like learning, uh, you know, all the, all the basic circus stuff, like juggling or, or tumbling, um, gymnastic style stuff. But this specific act we've been training for, probably already five years. Very cool. And Valeria, welcome. What about you? Did you always aspire to join the circus one day? Yeah, I'm not from a circus family at all. But once I decided to try this world of circus, and then I became to be an aerialist artist. And it was started like this. And then I was traveling, working in Ukraine, of course. And now I'm here. And how old were you when you started? I guess it was around eight years. Now I'm 22. So it's about 14 years. Wow. (laughs) Of course, now it's my own life. Now it's your whole life. Well, can we talk about your life in the Ukraine and what it was like for you to come over to be able to perform with the circus troupe? Yeah, I'm so lucky to be here. But when we flight here, the war in Ukraine didn't start. So it was our plan to come here. And then we realized what happens later in Ukraine. And now we're one of the lucky artists from Ukraine who are able to work because every circus artist needs to perform, to show their emotions everywhere. Mm. 
it's successfully to be here and perform. So you have friends and family and colleagues that are also circus performers in the Ukraine who are not able to work right now, nor probably carry on their everyday life. Yeah, of course. It's a lot of people now in Ukraine, even my family, friends, colleagues, yes. And they need to live their own new life here, sir. Some of them changed their jobs and started to make something another or similar. But of course, men are not able to go abroad now from Ukraine. Right. And are you able to communicate with home as often as you'd like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. I'm talking with my family, with my friends almost every day, checks and news. So it's not a problem. That's great. That's great. Well, let's talk about the bingo troop. What does the bingo troop act entail? Uh, yeah, I told you the troop, it's a huge amount of people. Uh, it's about around maybe 200, 150, 100 people. And we are started in Ukraine. And now we are working through over the world. It's um, circus show theater with different acts like acrobats, aerial acts, dancers. And we are performing with a lot of energy. It's like our own style. So yeah, you can see it in Circus Focus. I'm glad that you're here and you're able to have this artistic outlet right now for your emotional expression. That's got to be a big deal. Yeah, of course. We're just so happy. Well, Jan, can you tell us about some of the other acts that are part of Circus Vasquez? Yes, we have a lot of acts. We have all the traditional things you would expect in a circus, like acrobats, trapeze, jugglers, clowns, everything with a very modern twist and um, very high quality installations. We have also very thrilling and dangerous acts. Like my personal favorite is the Wheel of Death. I know that name is is really extreme, (laughs) but it's it's my favorite act in the show. It's very scary. It's like a a pendulum. I don't know how to describe it. It's like this big uh, spinning wheel where two Colombian guys are they're jumping and doing flips and really crazy stuff that they should probably not be doing. <laughs> but we we all love it. They love to do it. We love to watch them. And a lot more stuff, you know, uh, it's a family show. Everybody can enjoy it. And uh, with artists from all over the world, as you can see from Ukraine, Colombia, Italy, Spain, Mexico, from the US, from Africa, we have from all over the place, uh, a very complete show for the whole family. And is the African troop the super tumblers? Yes, the super tumblers. Can you describe them for us? Well, the name says it all. They're super, <laughs> super tumblers. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> Touche. Well they, done. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're tumblers and they're pretty good. I watched a few of their videos online. They're they're incredible. Yeah, those guys are crazy. So I'm thrilled that this is an all-human cast of circus superstars. When did your family decide not to include animals? Well, we used to have animals, but, you know, times are changing. A lot of people like animals in the circus. A lot of people don't. And truly, you don't need animals to have a, a good show. Even though when we did have animals, they were the most important aspect of the show. We, we took the best care for them. Like they, they had a better lunch than I did and uh, <laughs> better care. But some people asked not to have animals in, in the circus and we have to listen. We have to adapt. And, you know, we, we can have a truly good show without animals. We've demonstrated that already for 
for the past three years since we don't have animals. And yeah, that's it. That's pretty much it. That's good. The place that you're holding the circus, Plaza Fiesta on Buford Highway, for Atlanta, that is one of the most culturally diverse streets in our city. And I know you performed here in 2019 as well. What is it about this location that you enjoy? Plaza Fiesta is really good. I always like coming here. I've been coming here to this place since I was a kid. And uh, I don't know, the, the people here are very energetic. They really like the circus. And uh, there's a lot of diversity, especially now. We used to have a show in Spanish for many years. And now it's a, it's a lot of English. We still throw in a, a few Spanish words. But we, we want to reach all the audiences. We want everybody to have a good time in our circus. So we're doing everything in English, but still still connecting with our uh, Latin audiences. And yeah, the Plaza Fiesta itself, I, I, I always like to go in there for some food. You know, <laughs> Everything's good in yeah. there. Yeah. Very cool. Valeria, what you do to an outsider looks super scary. Do you still struggle with fear or is that just something that at some point in your career you had to get past? <laughs> um, I guess almost every artist has some like fear, but it's pleasant fear to work, as for me, on the top. It's like fear uh, which gives you more power. So it's fear, but it's pleasant. I more enjoy that feel fear when I'm performing. Ringmaster and performer Jan Vazquez and aerialist Valeria Koshova. Circus Vasquez is in town through the end of July at Plaza Fiesta on Buford Highway. More information is on our website, wabe.org. And now, for some reason unbeknownst to me at this moment, we're joined by City Lights producers, Summer Evans, and City Lights senior producer, Kim Drobes. What's going on here? Hello, Lois. <laughs> hey. So Summer and I got notification that you, I hope, already know, but we wanted to share it with everyone. We found out yesterday afternoon that you have been named as one of five honorees in the 2022 class of Georgia Radio Legends. Summer and I already knew you were a radio legend, but now <laughs> everybody knows you are. Oh, Yes, congratulations, Lois. It's well-deserved. Well, thank you. I, it, it's a huge honor. I mean, to be recognized by peers, that's quite something. It's a really big deal. And there's an award ceremony at the end of August, and you truly are a legend. Oh, that's so sweet. I said that being recognized by one's peers is the ultimate honor. But I think the audience deserves to be in with this as well because I'm profoundly grateful for the listeners throughout these so many years. Indeed, you have some incredibly, incredibly loyal listeners, and they know a good thing when they hear it. Yeah, you've touched so many hearts, and for everybody to join you each day and be a part of your conversations... It really is an honor because you are just truly talented and a legend in Georgia 
and we're honored to have you on our team and to know hey, you. Now you're making me tear up and <laughs> sniffling does not sound good on the mic. <laughs> No, it does not. So Summer and I will get out of your way. But again, congratulations, Lois. Yes. You know what? Thank you. And you are never in my way. (laughs) You are the best. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll hear about the all-female cast leading the new production of The Merchant of Venice at Atlanta Shakespeare Tavern. Plus, the identities of indigenous people and their forced removal and displacement are explored in two new exhibitions at the Atlanta Contemporary. We'll visit with the exhibition's curators and our series of local artists in their own words. Speaking of the arts, we'll feature multimedia artist Carl James. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.